there's a part of the love that existed between you and your son that is invulnerable to the winds of change, of coming and going. And it's very hard when you're missing the form so much to hear that other reality that exists between the two of you. And yet that's there. Welcome to another Here and Now episode with Ram Das. We have another really rich episode for you today. This one is from 1990s Ram Das. It's a Q&A session, and he goes over some big topics, things like eating animals and ecological concerns, uh, the way that we get stuck and how it's part of the curriculum. He also talks about young people taking LSD and the importance of becoming somebody before we become nobody. And then the last section is dealing with the death of a child. So some big topics. And as always, these talks are not a one-way street. They are fodder for deeper conversations, which is one of the reasons we offer a meetup a week after each of these episodes. It's a way for us to connect with each other and just dive deeper. The next one is October 11th at 3 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. To get the links, sign up at ramdas.org slash fellowship, and then you'll get the invitations and links right into your inbox. And as many of you know, our mission at Love, Serve, Remember Foundation is to continue these teachings of Ramdas and Maharaji. And if you want to know more about Ramdas's teacher, Neem Karoli Baba, and how he touched the lives of so many people even after he left his body, you can now get Parvati Marcus's new book, Whisper in the Heart, on ebook wherever you buy books. And... One of the folks that really helped Ramdas and the other Westerners connect to Maharaji and these teachings was a very wise and profound man named K.C. Tiwari. If you tune into Krishna Das's podcast, I'm sure you've heard many stories about K.C. Tiwari. And there is a new film that was recently released about him. It's called Brilliant Disguise. And it is premiering at locations around the country over the next few weeks and months. So you can find out more about where and when, as well as about hosting local screenings. You just go to ramdas.org slash brilliant. And so with that, let us turn our attention to the wisdom of our beloved Ramdas. And may these teachings be a benefit for all of us. And remember. We can only do this because of those who support this work. So please take 60 seconds to listen to a word from our sponsors. Thank you so much. Namaste. Uh, the question of eating animals and um, peace and inner work. I uh, would find it hard to make a rule about anything in life. Um, I feel that each human being has to listen intuitively with their heart and do what they do. And for some people, some, one act is a corruption, and for another, it's a celebration and an act of joy. 
And when I'm with Tibetans and American Indians who honor their food and eat of the animals, there's something about it that does not feel violent and horrible to me. I don't know, you know, and I find peace in those beings. But I, I was with the Dalai Lama and he was saying, he's a vegetarian and he was saying, although most Tibetans aren't, but they lived where it was cold and that was all they could eat. And uh, he said to me, well, or he didn't say to me, but he said to us, he said, you know, the problem, you people eat all these little shrimp. He said, if you're going to eat things, eat a big one, because then it's just one, you know, instead of creating <laughs> So I may turn to elephants anytime. I, uh, <laughs> uh, nothing is too personal about my life. That's the fun of it. I don't. I can be truthful. Um, I, uh, I, I share life with fish. <laughs> I eat fish, and uh, I don't eat red meat. Now and then I do, but it doesn't do well with me. Um, I just find that I'm attracted to different diets. I would be very happy with rice and vegetables. I mean, I, I keep being pulled that way, but when you're at Ramada Inns and, you know, all those places, rice and vegetables just not yet. You know, that's what I mean. The external institutions don't really reflect our inner being yet, but they're going to be. You watch. John Robbins wrote an interesting book, very interesting book certainly made me look at chicken differently, I must say. Yes. Yeah, as long as you have fear of death, it's hard to have humor about the ecological situation. So you have work to do on yourself. And when you feel yourself getting too trapped, like I watch my own mind, and when I get started to get trapped in stuff, because it's so heavy, I can feel it's like diving from air into water. It's like going into a thicker medium. And then I immediately go into my practices, my Ram, Ram, or my Guru, or my Sir, whatever my practices are, to bring my consciousness back up. Because as long as I stay mired in the drama of it, all I'm doing is digging everybody's hole deeper along with me. And so I just see it as a place to work on myself. It's not bad, it's not good. Of course we're going to get stuck. That's why we took human incarnation. If you weren't ever going to get stuck, you wouldn't have taken birth here. That's your work. It's not better or worse. And it's, and it's not something to wear as a badge that you get lost, and it's not something to wear as a badge that you don't get lost. You just see the way it is. You see the way you get stuck and the way you work on yourself. Okay? It's hard. I mean, in preparing for this tour, I got very deep into my understanding of ecology, of politics, of economics, of a lot of the pain and suffering of issues of consumerism and unemployment and all that got heavier because all those books are written by people for whom it's really heavy stuff. It got heavier and heavier and heavier and heavier until I was clawing to come back up for air. And it was interesting because the first lecture of this tour I gave in Miami was pretty heavy. And then each lecture I've been climbing up a little more because I stopped reading for a while and I've just been centering and coming back. That's the work. Okay. Yes? Could I tell you about my experience with LSD in India, did you say? You must know that I've had an experience to ask. You just want it told again. 
<laughs> you mean about my guru? I don't remember. <laughs> no, I went to India and I had, um, I had been studying and working with psychedelic chemicals for many years. And at one point, I, um, when I met my guru, he said, uh, you use that yogi medicine? And I didn't know what he meant. And somebody said LSD. And I, LSD, he said, yes. You got any? I said, yeah. And he said, bring it. So I brought it. And I put one pill in his hand. And he held out his hand for another. And then another. And that was 900 micrograms, which was a lot. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and he went, I, uh, and I thought, boy, this is going to be interesting. <laughs> and then nothing happened. And I thought, that's far out. And I thought, well, that makes perfect sense. If I'm stuck at A, I take that in order to unstick me so I will be able to get to B. But if you're already at B, it must be like drinking water. What difference does it make? I mean, well, there's nowhere to go. So, you know, if you're at A and B, what do you, it, it doesn't matter. So I went home and told everybody that I met this guy that took 900 micrograms and nothing happened. Because that's, I mean, that's our medicine, you know. And, uh, but in my back of my mind, I thought, maybe he's conning me. Maybe he clouded my mind and threw it over his shoulder, you know. <laughs> so I went back to India two years later. And one day he called me up and he said, did you give me some medicine last time you were here? And I said, yeah. He said, did I take it? I said, I think you did. Oh. You got any more? I said, yeah, bring it. So I brought it out. So he took, there were five pills, and he took four of them. One was broken. He wouldn't touch that. He took the four. It was 1,200. And he stuck each one on his tongue. And then he said to me, will it make me mad? I said, probably. And after about, he said, how long will it take? And I said, maybe an hour. So he got a big watch and he was looking at it. And after a little while, he pulled his blanket up over his head and he came out looking mad, like, like this. And then he just laughed at me. And then he says, these medicines were known about for thousands of years. In fact, almost every culture has had medicines for altering consciousness. I mean, that's the truth, the aside from what he said. And he said, but people have lost the knowledge of how to use these really effectively and how to prepare themselves for it. He said, it's useful, but it's not the full samadhi. It's not the complete thing. But it can be useful under certain conditions. I said, what are those conditions? He said, when you're feeling much peace and your mind is turned towards God and you're in a cool place, it could be useful. He said, it would allow you to come in and be in the presence of the spirit, but you can only stay for a few hours and then you'd have to leave. He said, it's better to become the spirit than to visit it, but your medicine won't do that for you. I thought that was pretty profound. Now, I realize that we are in a very delicate situation in our culture about psychedelic, about drugs. And 
what has happened is because of our fear, and as I said earlier, drug usage in our culture is a symptom. It's not the thing itself, it's a symptom. And a symptom primarily of our myths and our economy. And what we have done is we have massed together chemicals that are primarily used as escape vehicles or to give one a sense of power, of personal ego power, which are primarily the opiate derivatives and the coca derivatives. And we have massed those together with the, trypt the tryptamines, which are another class of chemicals entirely that affect the consciousness differently. And it comes down to the fact that we have thrown the baby out with the bath out of our fear. Because psychedelic chemicals, like LSD and mescaline and peyote and all of those things, have incredible potential to help people break out of sets that they have developed that are dysfunctional sets. It's, it's wonderful in working with dying people. It's wonderful working with, fall, fall, with marriages that are stuck. It's wonderful working in many therapeutic situations with prisoners in prison, etc. That All that research has been ruled out because of the culture's fear and the oversimplification of somebody like Nancy Reagan saying, just say no. And all we've got to understand is the climate in this culture is one of hysteria at this point. And what it behooves each person to do is to educate themselves and be responsible and listen. As far as young people using chemicals, my reflections about it are, as I've looked over the last 30 years, that it's important that you become somebody before you become nobody. And that people that try to become nobody too soon lose their ground. That is, they forget their zip code. And it's, therefore, there is a timing for this kind of work. And when you do it too soon, it's harder to do the part of grounding that is required of an incarnation. So just be thoughtful about how you do it. There's no rush. And trust your intuitive heart. I think we've got to start to hear that we can't trust other people's statements. We've got to run them through our own intuitive heart. And we've got to learn to trust that. Hard though it is. Sir? How do you reconcile the Hindu doctrine of Atman, or the, the One, with the Buddhist doctrine of Anatta, meaning no self or no one? Um, well, I'll tell you how I do it, because I'm a uh, Buddhist Hindu. Uh, When you are in dualism, you see the one from the point of view of the two. As you merge into the one, there is no longer one or two. There is only zero, which is the formless with the potential for form. It's like form is no other than emptiness, emptiness no other than form, form is emptiness, emptiness is form. 
So I would say that they're exactly the same thing. They're just two sides of the coin, whether you're looking at it from the side of prakriti, that is, patterns of energy, or purush, meaning the formless that lies behind it. Okay? You can't get many Buddhists and Hindus to understand that because they're too busy being Buddhists and Hindus. But, but behind it all, here we are. You know, it's where one equals zero. That's the fun of it. Yes. Each of us approaches life with a certain set of attachments and aversions. And whatever act we do is colored by those attachments and aversions. When you identify with a desire, there is burnout. Burnout is a clue to you that you're doing it from the wrong place, which forces you back to work on yourself. It's just a cue. It's information. There is no... Um, you have to listen, again, intuitively to hear what strategy you have to pursue. You are a unique entity and have a unique karmic predicament. There's no rule of the game. There is one person who sits in a cave all their life and quiets, and the quietness of their energy is feeding the universe. There is another person who is out standing in front of a train to stop trigger mechanisms for plutonium bombs from getting out of a factory. And they're doing it with love and quietness in their heart. And those people are just doing each their part. And there is nothing wrong at times with pulling back to do inner quiet. We've got to learn. I've been living my life cyclically for many years. I go out into the world until the kind of toxins build up. Then I pull back and I do deep meditative practice. And when I'm back after a while, I intuitively feel I must go out. And when I'm out at times, I feel intuitively at times I must draw back. And I trust those, and I don't ask anybody for their judgment about it. I just know I have to do that. Okay? There was a great moment. I was in Burma. I had been doing two months of meditation with a wonderful master, Saida Upandita. And I got a telegram saying that my stepmother had cancer. My father was very old at the time, and she was just telling me that. She wasn't going to ask me to do anything. The minute, and she was going to be operated on it in about four days. So I took the telegram to my guru, my master, and I showed it to him. And uh, he looked, he read the telegram, and he said, I don't think you should go. And I said, I have to go. And he said, you are making good progress. You're leaving now in response to this. You will help a little. But if you'll continue your work, you will help a lot. And I heard him, and I said, you and I both understand I have to go. And that was the predicament. I mean, I, that was, we both saw my karmic predicament. That from where I was at my level of evolution, I couldn't not go. Even though I understood what he was talking about. At another time, it might have been different. Sure. Working with somebody that you love that has AIDS is great work on yourself because it's, it's so unpredictable and so changing that it will suck you in. And every time you have an expectation, it will get destroyed. 
And just as you figure, you figured out how to handle this one, it'll change. And that's what good situation is for growth because it'll keep seducing you back in until you can be absolutely equanimous. And somebody says, oh, I'm much better. Oh, I'm much worse. And you say, ah, so. And you're happy when they're better and you're sad when they're worse, but none of it upsets your equanimity. That's your work. Okay? Sir. He said his son died a year ago and he's having a lot of trouble with what I'm saying. It's a Buddhist master who was um, very wise and he was sitting by the side of the road sobbing because his son had died. And his students said, why are you crying, master? You know about the spirit. You know about illusion. He said, yes, but the death of a child is the greatest illusion. It's the hardest one ever to see through. And for you as a father, to see that being as your son awakens a tremendous amount of grief. And the grief... Oh, yes, one second. We have more grief here. And the grief has to run its course. When you quiet down the mind from missing your son and sit quietly, you will begin to feel that too, in the way that you truly loved, to the extent that you two touched each other in real love, the strength of that relationship is still present, even though you miss the form desperately. And that missing of the form has to run its course as grief goes until the end. But there is a part of the relationship between you and your son There's a part of the love that existed between you and your son that is invulnerable to the winds of change, of coming and going. And it's very hard when you're missing the form so much to hear that other reality that exists between the two of you. And yet that's there. And you can't believe it as a belief because beliefs won't keep you warm on a cold night. But as you just let the grief run its course and keep your heart open, there will be moments when you will feel your son's presence. And there'll be a tendency for you to reject that as just the meanderings of mind. But if you will allow it to be, you will begin to feel sustained and fed by that. I was working with a couple whose daughter went to play tennis with her girlfriend, and they, they were 11 years old, and they were both raped and murdered. And I wrote a letter saying, how could anybody say anything that would reduce your grief? Because this is such a violent act. And yet maybe there will come a time when you will understand why it was the way it was 
and why it had to be the way it was. I can only wish for you that and feel just incredible pain for your suffering, which is unbearable. There is a way in which your son came to you. If you'll hold on one second, let me just work with this for a second. I think I can work with this for a second. Wait a minute, let me just think whether I can. This is a letter I got from um, a man whose um, 23-year-old son went uh, surfing and uh, drowned. And... Um, he wrote me and he felt that there was no spiritual possibility that there could be any explanation for this. Problem is I'm not sure I have the letter. Yeah, I do. It's not nice. I have in hand the extraordinary letter which you wrote to me April 7th. I want to apologize for the delay in my response, etc. I feel such pain for the loss that you and your wife have suffered. The grief that parents experience at the loss of a child is perhaps the deepest grief of all because it seems to upset the natural order of things and because you say in your remarkable letter, Keith was your future. What I can share with you from a spiritual vantage point cannot really allay your grief as a parent. Perhaps, however, it may allow you and Keith to know each other in another way and that other way of knowing may give balance to the grief. With this balance, you may then be a little more able to bear the unbearable. Keith had a strong, he described Keith to me, Keith had a strong and attractive and coordinated 23-year-old body. He also had a warm and vibrant personality. These were the obvious ways that you could know Keith through your own senses and thinking mind. But there is another way in which we can know one another, through our intuitive hearts. This way of knowing one another is subtle, and so it is often hidden behind the more obvious ways of knowing through senses and thought. But if we know what to look for and cultivate that intuitive way of knowing, we find out for ourselves that we are each indeed more than just body and personality. While no name is entirely satisfactory for this other dimension of ourselves, for the purpose of our discussion, the word soul will do. What is this soul? It's a unique entity which, when the time is right, clothes itself in a personality and body to take birth on the physical human plane. This personality and body are much like spacesuits for dwelling on Earth. Inevitably, in all but the rarest cases, within a few years, the infant becomes so I strongly identified with its spacesuit that it loses its memory of its additional, initial identity as a soul. Then we live out life engaged in our human vocations until our death when we leave behind the spacesuit and once again remember our true selves as souls. Okay, let me go on. I can sense from your description of Keith and from the pictures that he sent me, the purity of his heart and the beauty of his soul. And I suspect that though you consider his work on earth just at the beginning, for his soul, the work was completed. 
Even the manner of his leaving was part of his work. Now, I realize that for you, it is inconceivable that a son who could call when he was going to be late in the evening could possibly leave you in such a fashion by choice. But you see, it was not his personality's choice, but his soul's choice. His personality would, in fact, never be able to leave you because of the power of the bonds of human-attached love that existed between you and your wife and your son. But the soul is not limited by human-attached love because it knows that it is joined to others by what is sometimes called the love that surpasseth understanding. It is conscious or spiritual love. It is the love that Christ shares with his Father. It is the same love that binds you and Keith together far more deeply than even the human love of father and son. Now, when your grief is at its strongest, it is hard to tune in to this deeper love, especially since it makes no rational sense. And I've said all this to you. I cannot negate the pain, but it will balance that loss with a new opportunity. For now that his captivating form is no longer present, you are more free to make contact with his soul, especially if you are able to acknowledge your own. The question of whether your life has been destroyed by this event is another point that is touched by our discussion. For your personality, the pain is shattering and seemingly unbearable. I have no doubt that you awaken crying and find life now meaningless. Such suffering is what the personality would avoid at all costs if it were possible. For your soul, however, it is an entirely different matter. For your soul, suffering is that which forces you to grow spiritually and brings you closer to awakening to whom you in truth are. Okay, I think that's enough. That's the best I can do in dealing with that question. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time for us to stop. This has been a very, very sweet evening. And I want to thank you all for being sharing it. In India, when we meet in part, we say namaste, which means I honor the place in you where when you're in yours and I'm in mine, there's only one of us. Namaste. This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate you listening and we appreciate all the support that you've given us. Please continue that support and donate at Ramdas.org. We can then continue to share what Ramdas has been sharing for all of these years. Thank you.